0: If you are between the ages of 4 to 8, you're excused to Kids Club. We are in our seventh week of a series entitled Design and Deception. And I came exceedingly close as a parent to discussing the fact that my kids are designed to wake up early and that daylight savings time is a deception. Because they woke up at the same time this morning that they always did. It was just earlier. They were deceived and it hurt. We've been considering God's great design and Satan's work of deception. This week we're going to step into the biblical perspective of marriage. As we began this series, we started, and we have every week, with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is the beginning of our worldview. In the beginning, God. It's about Him, it's not about me. In the beginning, God. It started with Him. He existed before me. He's our creator. He is to be worshiped, and He is the King. And subsequently, I'm none of those things. I'm finite. I have a beginning and an end. I'm a creature, a worshiper. And most importantly, I'm not the King. And if we'd have just ended there, if the Bible would have ended there, we would have called this series Design, and we'd all moved on, and we'd all be happier and simpler. But it didn't end there. Another character entered into the fold, a slithering snake known as Satan. By the way, as a church, we believe in a literal Satan. We believe he exists, and we believe that he is constantly at work, warring against the plans of God. This character Satan slithers up to Adam and Eve and plants a question. A question we've discussed every week. Because Satan had at his very heart the desire to strike at the relationship between man and God. To challenge God's authority. To challenge God's word. And to make Adam and Eve not believe him. And he's still doing the same thing today. Still at work. Still challenging men's belief in God. Still challenging whether or not God is trustworthy. And as we've walked through this, we've used this verse to frame our conversation in Judges seventeen six. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and we walk in similar times. When we deny the king, we will do what is right in our eyes. When we deny the king, we believe the slithery lies of Satan. And when those lies go unchecked, it leads to all kinds of destruction. And so here we are this morning unfolding the design of God and exposing the lies of the evil one and as we step into this we say this as we do every week we want to remind you of the purpose of this teaching series and it's to hold high our view of the authority of scripture that when God gave us boundaries when God says no he has the right to do it because he's God and so we're going to give him permission to say no to us and as we've walked through this, we've made a commitment to call sin, sin. It's your job as a church when you hear called sin to apply it to your life. This is a great week to apply it to your life. Don't apply it to your spouse. Don't apply it to your kids, your neighbors, your classmates, your coworkers. It's truth for you. Because we want you to hear what God's word says to you. And if you look around the room, you miss what it says to you because it's so easy for us to apply it to some other people. This morning, we also want to be reminded that we all fall short, and that the grace of Jesus Christ abounds, forgives, and renews, always calling us away from sin. Last week, we outlined singleness, and started with an important verse of why that was important for all of us. We honed in on Colossians 2.10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority, in this context, you saw the distinct markings of design and deception. In verse 10, Paul makes it plain to the Colossians. You have been filled in him. So whether you're single or married, what the scripture says to you by design, our fullness is to come from Jesus Christ, not from something else. So as believers, we lean into that and we note that we're not called to be defined by our relational status, but by Jesus Christ. And it's true for single people, and it's true for married people, it's true for all of us. So leaning into that, we must now say that if, if marriage isn't made to make me whole, if marriage isn't given to me to make me complete, what's it here for? What's its purpose? So let's step back into design and move back into Genesis chapter 2. 2 verses 18 through 25, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. We've talked about this for a couple of weeks. It's not good for the man to be alone. And for the record, this is not talking about singleness. This is talking about community. It was not good for him to be by himself. He needed something else. God did not say, let's make a completer. God did not say, let's complete this guy. Rather, God says, let's make him a suitable helper, a compliment to him. So as you see this as this first step, you see marriage doesn't complete. It complements. So let's keep watching because this gets really fascinating. In verse 19, having noted this guy's alone, it's not good. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. God says, it's not good for this man to be alone. And then God says, hey, let's, let's name all the animals. You know, that always makes sense. Let's do something here. Let's acknowledge a problem and then shift a direction. But I think what God does here is important. I think it was probably confusing for Adam, but I think it had some clarifying qualities because God had a plan and God had a process. It says in the end of verse 20, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So I think what God did for Adam in that moment was to help him establish the need. He wanted to show him something. So, as these animals walked before Adam, Adam looked and he said, A cow, not my compliment. A horse, not my compliment. A squirrel, not my compliment. A dog, not my compliment. A platypus, strange looking, and not my compliment. The text would continue. We could play that out as Adam names things, but I think what would become abundantly clear to Adam as he looked around is none of these things will complete you. None of these things will complement you. It would establish a need in Adam that you see in verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And God makes woman. We talked about that extensively a couple of weeks ago, talking about sexuality. But in this place, we want to see that as God has brought Adam to this place, creates a compliment. Now Adam looks and he sees, and this is how he responds. In verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Adam says, this is my compliment. And you start to see God laying the foundation for marriage. In verse 24 and 25, by the way, if you don't see why this becomes a foundation for marriage, we'll make it pretty clear for you here. God says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So lean into that text for just a minute. How how do we note that this begins a context of marriage for us? Let's point out two things to you. First, did Adam and Eve have parents? Thank you. Yeah, so Adam was not under some great call to leave his father and mother, was he? Eve probably didn't have a mom and dad to be worried about here. So you see, God is actually instituting something here that's of eternal significance, that's big, that's sizable, that's not just for Adam and Eve. And secondly, if you watch the nouns, Eve changes from being a woman to being a wife. And you see that these titles of husband, and wife, attributed to Adam and Eve. And you see throughout the scriptures that we're always challenged to make this our fullness. We're always challenged to make this everything. And the reality is we set up marriage for defeat when we make it that way. Marriage was designed to be our complement and not our complete. And it's one of the greatest lies that Satan wants us to believe about marriage It's one of those places he whispers to us, marriage will complete you. Your husband's supposed to make you happy. Your wife is supposed to comfort you. There's thousands upon thousands of lies that you get whispered to, that I get whispered to on a regular basis. And we miss the fact that marriage won't complete us and it's not designed to. Last week, we considered Colossians 2.10, which is true for all of us, but especially when it counters the lie told to folks who were single. He is our fullness. This morning, by design, we want to see that he is our fullness and our spouse is our complement, so we want to step into another text that's true for all of us, and especially true at unwinding the lies of the evil one. This morning, our text is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A strange text for marriage. Another text that's true for all of us And in this text to the Galatian church, Paul leans and he tells, he leans in and he tells the believers, We have been crucified with Christ. That this is the fullness of the Christian life lived out in its entirety. This isn't half hearted cultural Christianity. This is the full pie of the faith. This is belief in Jesus to the full. He was crucified. And I was crucified with him. My sin, my flesh, my desires, crucified with him. And I no longer live by the flesh, or by my desires, or by my sin. It is Christ who lives in me, Christ who comes out of me. It is Christ whom you encounter when you experience me. My life is based on him. Why? Because he loved me and he gave himself for me. It is Christ who lives in us. And quickly we can step into that. You can look at my life and say, Ben, it's not Christ I encounter when I see you. My wife could attest to that. This is the way the gospel is laid out for us. This is our great hope that Christ would come through us. This is why Jesus said, and we'll talk about it again here in a couple of minutes, pick up your cross daily. It's that constant need to crucify yourself, to die to yourself that becomes so crucial in marriage and disarms the lies of the evil one. Galatians 2.20 has rampant application throughout all of our lives, but especially in marriage. Die to yourself that Jesus might live through you. This is a lie spoken to those who are married. Those who might believe the marriage is about us. Or at worst, marriage is about me. And I'm guessing if I pin you in a corner during treat time and I ask you, most of you wouldn't confess that. Most of you wouldn't say my marriage is about me. My marriage exists to make me happy. My marriage exists to comfort me. But by our practices, our daily practices, and frankly, my daily practices, sometimes, in fact, probably most of the time, I want my marriage to make me comfortable. I want it to make my life easier. I don't want to die to myself. I want my marriage to be the one place where I can sit and rest and just be me. It ought to be a safe place, right? This is a lie of marriage. Friends, God gave you marriage not to make you happy, full, or content, But somewhat in reality, he did it so he could move someone into your life so close to you that you could no longer hide anymore. He did it to move someone so close to you that you couldn't pretend you had your junk together anymore. God did it to move someone so close to you that your sin would be evident. Your brokenness would be known. And listen to me. There's no one in this room who knows I'm a bigger sinner than Pam. There's no one here who knows all the ways that I'm entirely messed up than the person I share a bed and a bedroom with. And it's true for all of us who are married, not just me. Thank you. I don't feel alone now. Two big sinners in the room. Three. If God made marriage about making us complete, happy, and full, Pam got the short end of the stick. She got royally hosed. So let's look and let's step back into Ephesians 5 and look at marriage from God's perspective, from what he designed it to be. And this is going to come high and tight, so buckle in. I've been watching a lot of baseball, so you might get some baseball analogies out of me. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Wives, you're called to submit to your husbands. Now, just as we considered last week, this idea of submission, we've got to disarm it, it's not a dirty word. You find it used throughout the New Testament that Christ submits to the Father. All believers are called to submit to one another. It means literally to humble yourself, to die to yourself, to place yourself underneath somebody. That this idea of submission is a word of humility and not oppression. It's it's one that in biblical terms can't be forced upon someone. It's the willingness of one to show humility To place themselves under. In a single action, it asks a woman this. Are you willing to die to yourself? Are you willing to sacrifice your pride, your agenda, your control? And wives, last week, the $10,000 question was, is he worth submitting to? And this morning, I submit to you As one who is married, that the $10,000 question here is, are you willing to give up your pride? Are you willing to give up your control and your agenda? Are you willing to die to yourself? Because here's where it gets really hard. This isn't a conditional clause. At no point in this text is there an if. Is there a precondition? At no point in this does it suggest or point to the idea that if he has done these three things, if his shoes are put away, if the laundry is done, if the dishes are put away, then it's not a conditional statement. It's in command form. It's an imperative. This text indicates very clearly that your willingness to die to yourself And place yourself under your husband is a testimony of your willingness to submit yourself to Jesus Christ. Wives, die to yourself. And men, before we go any further, let me say a word about this text to you. And in the interest of your health, don't ever bring this up. It's between her and those who will keep her accountable. It's between her and the Lord. And in all seriousness, to bring this up to your wife in many cases can amount to spiritual abuse. And you can't do it. It's not your job to convict her of sin, it's not your job to play the role of the Holy Spirit. It's between her and the Lord. And by the way, if you're worried about her plate, your plate's about to be pretty full. So let's take care of your business here. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives. This word, as we discussed last week, is agape. It means to seek the highest good for another person. And here... Love is not an emotion, it's a commitment. Here, it's not an emotion, but a commitment to seeking her highest good, to wanting what's best for her. This is a challenge. Am I married in a way that wants what's best for my wife, or am I only expecting her to seek my highest good? Because as Paul draws this out, the challenge gets even more daunting. Husbands, love your wives. It doesn't say, like your neighbor loves his. It doesn't say according to what your dad did for your mom. It doesn't say what your mentor did for his w- It doesn't say anything. The parallel here, husbands, love your wives, runs face first into the gospel and says, as Christ loved the church, And gave himself up for her. And by the way, this is not a conditional statement. Again, an imperative. A command. It's not predicated on her being a good wife. Her meeting your needs. Her doing the chores or the expectations you have. It's a command. Love your wives as Christ loved the church And gave himself up for her. Guys, we know the gospel. What did Jesus Christ do for the church? He died. Was that a fair encounter? No. In fact, if you want to lean into that, Jesus kind of got hosed. The church really has never been faithful to the cause. We've always fallen short. So the call here is loving your wives becomes incredibly sacrificial. And in fact, it's a call to lead in sacrifice. That if you come to a day when somebody needs to die to themselves, it better be you. Guys, this punches me in the gut so many times when Pam and I, I turn my back to her, get into an argument, and I'm so frustrated that she needs to apologize. Why is she, why am I always the first to apologize? Why doesn't she lean into this? Why doesn't she own her business? Guess what? It's on me. I always ought to apologize first. I always ought to own my junk first. Because I stink at this. I'm not standing here to tell you I'm awesome at marriage. We're going through the Bible. We're taking God's word. Men it lays out for you the calling to lead and sacrifice, to die to yourself first and foremost, so that you would look at her and decide what is the job in her house she hates the most. I'll do it. Hand it to me. That we would be Christ to our wives. That we'd be Christ to them. We'd show them grace. We'd show them leadership. We'd show them honor. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Matthew 16, 24. By the way, I don't think I've got this in the slides. Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. By the way, according to Jesus, this is the call for believers and especially played out in marriage. The New Living Translation, which is a paraphrase, puts it this way. If any of you wants to be my follower, he must turn away from his selfish ways, take up his cross, and follow me. Paul takes the words of Jesus here and makes marriage the center of the application. Die to yourself. Pick up your cross and die. And he doesn't mean it physically. He means to kill your selfishness, to kill your pride, to kill your agenda, to kill your entitlement. Just as Jesus gave up literally everything for the church. Give yourself up for your bride. Love her. And this sacrifice is what the Bible calls love. It's not an emotion. It's not a you complete me moment. It's, a, I have declared that my life exists in part to serve you and to die for you. And Paul plays that out further that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with word. Guys, while dying for your wives, lead them. Don't buy into the pansy stuff of my generation where you get passive, you back out, and you don't engage. Lead. Here it looks like creating an environment where she'll spiritually blossom. I talked about this a little bit last week in dating. You want to create an environment where your wife's relationship with Jesus will grow. And by his water and the leadership you provide, she will blossom. My sweet bride asked me, upon knowing my intention to marry her but not proposing yet, she asked me, Ben, how do I know that you'll be faithful? I had to tell her, you don't. Because that's honest. I'm a big hunking sinner. I can't tell you that, I'll be honest. What I can tell you is this. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. That God will be faithful to you, whether I'm faithful or not. And when you lean into that text, I would tell you this, that if I want my wife to be faithful to me, I've got to trust Jesus for that. But the best thing I can do for that is create a place where she's spiritually edified, where she loves the Lord, where she's growing in faith, where she's held accountable. That if I do that, the success of my marriage doubles and triples. They might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with word. And he brings it to the end in verse 27. So that he might present the church. That's interesting. We'll talk about that here in a minute. And a text about marriage. He might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So that she might be holy. ...and without blemish. And Jesus' love and leadership of the church was to this end, that she was holy, and that she was without blemish. And the parallel into marriage here is real and true. Gentlemen, die to yourselves. Lead your wives in such a way that she is holy and without blemish. Lead your wives in such a way that you are instilling purity, integrity, and honor... So that the holiness that is expressed in her is with you and not in spite of you. 28, Paul brings it back around and says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Paul keeps pushing on this. You're a one flesh union. Clearly in Jesus' times, guys, we're just as tempted as we are now to think mostly about ourselves and not about our wives. Paul leans into that and says, treat her like she's yours. Because she is. When you come to an idea of what's really good for me, she better be involved in the idea. You're in a one Flesh union. Take care of her as you would take care of yourself. And there are two good words here. Nourish and cherish. Provide for your wife. Treasure them. And through all of this, see, die to yourself. It's all here. Paul concludes this way. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Flesh. My married friends, do not lean into your parents. Leave and cleave. When you got married to your spouse, your relationship with your parents was terminated. There's an extraordinary sweet pot part of marriage that we don't very much acknowledge. And it's that moment when a dad says, her mother and I do, that's extraordinary. Because in that moment, a dad literally hands his authority of his daughter over to another man, gives it up, and says, it's all on you, son. So guys, take it. Don't go back to your parents. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. She is your family. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is where you lean in again and you just say, in the middle of probably the greatest passage about marriage in the New Testament, and we've got a couple of them, Paul makes it pretty clear that this passage about marriage is actually about the church. That it's about Jesus and the church, which ought to make it abundantly clear it's not about you. It's not about you, it's not about your desires, about your wants, it's about him. God provided marriage to humanity as an illustration. God provided marriage to humanity as an illustration so that the gospel would be played out well. So that the love of a husband for his wife Would be a testimony to her and to the world that Jesus is loving and gracious. And the love of a wife or her husband is a testimony both to her husband and the world that Jesus is alive and that he's gracious. We miss this reality that marriage is about him. And by the way, if you want to talk about the true definition of marriage as the Bible would define it, this is the only text we need. Because it's about him. It's not about Christ and Christ. It's not about the church and the church. All of those would be foolish. It's about Christ and the church. It's about our unions as married people And and by the way, I'm leaning into your business hard now and telling you this that your marriage reflects to the world and it reflects about Jesus. It reflects about Jesus and the church and how we lead our lives and how we walk reflects on Him. So that people ought to look at us and look at our marriages and say, Man, I believe in Jesus is real because of how they treat each other. He's not perfect. She's not perfect, but I see a gracious union here. Our marriages are a testimony to the world that Jesus is real, that Jesus is the answer. Marriage is about Him. And if you want to have a good, healthy, lasting marriage, die to yourself. You see it played out in every single part of what Paul would say to a married person. You see it played out in 1 Peter, what Peter would say to a married person. You see it played out in 1 Corinthians 7, when they lay out these great marriage texts. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. Die to yourself. This past week, I was reading a study put out on marriage and divorce, put out by Lifeway. It actually came out on Thursday. It was an important question that was asked. Is the church a safe place to talk about marital difficulties? There's a graph, If you, you shoot it for me. At first glance, these responses aren't that bad. You'd note that if you look at it, among Protestant pastors, 94% think the church is a healthy place to talk about marital difficulties. Of course I think that. People come and talk to me about marriage difficulties. I can attest. There are people who are dealing with their business. Among happily married churchgoers, it increases. Why? Because there are people who live amongst you who are not going to talk to me about their marital business. They're going to talk to other people. And that's a fine thing to do. If you're married and you're struggling, you don't want to talk to me, that's fine. I've not been married that long. But there's some folks here who have been married way longer. Talk to them. The problem comes in the third graph among churchgoers who are divorced. And you start to see this large disconnect where there are people among us who don't feel comfortable talking to me, who don't feel comfortable talking to you, and who are clearly struggling. Church, every week I stand here and tell you that the church is a gathered group of people falling short of the glory of God. That we're a gathered group of people struggling with sin. And the only reason we gather is because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Friends, nobody here is nailing it. There's not a marriage here who's perfect. So if you come and your marriage is struggling, if you're not getting along, you don't know what to do, don't hide that. Step into community. Step into the lives of some people who've been walking longer than you and you know what you'll quickly find? Some people will look at you and say, yeah, we've, did, we've done that too. Yeah, we've been there. Yeah, we walked through that fight last week. Why? Because Satan always wants to isolate us as sheep. He always wants to make us feel like we're alone, that we're the only people walking through this. And the reality is, if you're struggling in your marriage, I bet we got a dozen couples who fought that fight. A dozen people who've walked through that together. If you're struggling, please get help. I would meet with you. I have a host of friends who are counselors who'd meet with you. There are lots of people who would. Healthy people get help. The challenge of all of these passages is not that you'd nail it. The challenge is that you'd wake up and say, I'm going to die to myself today. What's that going to look like? Will you be perfect? (laughs) No. Not even close. That's why the marriage is a picture of the gospel. That when you fall short, your spouse looks at you and says, man, I'm so thankful you're trying. I'm so thankful you're involved. I'm so thankful you're going for it. I'm not nailing it either. That we'd be a picture of the gospel for each other. In closing also, I want to say this. On February 19th and 20th, Calvary, you can give to the next slide. Calvary will be a host site to the Mingling of Souls conference. It's a marriage conference. Uh, why? Because we think marriage is really important. And we want you to have healthy marriages. So that weekend of Friday night and on Saturday morning, we're going to gather in here and talk about marriage. And Matt Chandler, a pastor in Dallas, and his wife will be very, very, very frank about where they are and some of their struggles. He, he owns the fact that the first seven of years of their marriage were awful. Uh, it's one of the things I like about him and his writings. He's just real. I think it'll be really helpful for us as we want to lean in marriage more. So you might note that on your calendar. We'll talk about it a whole lot more going forward. So let's simplify it in this. The world would tell you that marriage is about making you happy, it's about making you comfortable, it's about meeting your needs. The gospel of Jesus Christ says it's a lie. Don't believe it, don't step into it, don't give it a footing. It'll destroy you. Only Jesus can make you full Your spouse was designed to be a complement to you. That you might have a better, more full picture of the gospel. That you'd know who Jesus was based on how your spouse treats you. By the way, own that as an individual before you apply it to your spouse. The gospel was given to us that we'd love each other, forgive one another, and testify to one another Marriage won't make you happy, but it will make you holy. And it will sanctify you as you learn on a regular basis what it looks like to die to yourself. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Especially on a week like this one. Father, I struggle sometimes to know how to lead my family. I struggle to know how to lead my wife I struggle in my own flesh, and my own selfishness, to get what I want. God, I too buy into this lie that my life ought to be comfortable, and that when I come home from a hard day, it ought to be peaceful. And I miss this agenda that you have in my life, Father, to rough me up, to grow me up in Jesus Christ, to smooth out my rough areas so that I'd lean into you more and I'd become a better reflection of your glory. God, may I and may all of us give up these lies and lean into this truth, Father, that you want to use marriage to grow us up in Jesus. May we embrace it and practice it and show our spouses the gospel every day. Jesus, thank you for loving us and dying on a cross for us. And we ask forgiveness, Father, that as a church we fall short of what you did for us. But we live in a place that's oh so thankful for your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.